Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 15 The Joint Study with Japan Mr Connor announced early in 1974 that discussions had been held with Japan on uranium enrichment and in November 1974, he announced that the Japanese had agreed to cooperate in a study of enrichment in Australia, which, in principle, Japan would favour, as a diversification of supply. He was particularly pleased that the Japanese agreed with the latter statement. We were not surprised. Miles and Alder had obtained the same reaction in Tokyo nearly four years earlier. The details of the proposed study had been negotiated by Sir Lennox Hewitt during visits to Japan, and as we found out later, it was to cover future supply and demand for enriched uranium, availability of raw materials, siting and energy costs in Australia, capital requirements and availability of technology from third countries. Australia and Japan had signed an agreement for cooperation back in February 1972 so the formalities for such a study were already established. However, nothing was done during 1975 to commence the study. We in the AAEC had not been involved in the planning and did not know what was going on. We did hear unofficially that the Minister's Department would carry out the study with the assistance of the AAEC, which did not please us. Then, the government changed at the end of 1975, and we still did not know. But in May 1976, the new minister, Mr J.D. Anthony, confirmed that the study would go ahead, and directed the commission to proceed with it. Our chairman, Bill Boswell, passed the instruction on to me. The first meeting of experts took place in Tokyo in November-December 1976. I took a team of four AAEC officers, Dr. C.J. Clarence Hardy, Mr. Bill Wright, Mr. D.J. Don Mercer, and Mr. A.P. Alan Marks. We were joined by the AAEC liaison officer in the Australian Embassy, Mr. J.J. John Humphreys and his deputy, Mr. Paul Wilson. John Humphreys had worked for a time on our centrifuge project. Our team was heavily outnumbered by our Japanese counterparts. The Japanese team was led by Dr. Y. Nakamura, a board member of the Power Reactor and Nuclear Fuel Development Corporation, PNC, and included officers from Japanese government agencies as well as from private industry. A second meeting was held in Sydney in April 1977 and was attended by a much larger team from Japan than we were able to send to Tokyo. I recall that there were about 12 in the Japanese team. We had considerable difficulty to get approved to send even five of us to Tokyo, because the Overseas Visits Committee in Canberra could not understand why one person would not suffice, supported by staff from the embassy in Tokyo. We did have excellent support from the embassy during our visits to Japan, but they could not take any active role in the discussions of enrichment technicalities or economics. I might add that in all the technical missions I undertook overseas, I found the Australian officers outstandingly helpful. 
and in most instances the ambassador or high commissioner and staff were genuinely interested in what I was there for, and what we were doing in Australia on the subject of atomic energy. Often a 10-minute courtesy call on His Excellency turned into an hour of discussion, and my colleagues constantly reported similar experiences. Sometimes we felt more appreciated abroad than at home. We went to Tokyo again in November 1977, and the Japanese team came to Sydney for our final discussions and drafting of the study report in April 1978. For both of these meetings, the Japanese team was led by Mr. S. Tamiya, Executive Director of the Japan Nuclear Enrichment and Reprocessing Group. Both teams were pleased with the results of the study, and agreed with the conclusions. We were pleased in particular to have a consensus conclusion, for it had not been an easy task. The initial discussions and working papers on the economics of a possible project gave us a lot of trouble, and it was only when we realised the differences in outlook between the two teams that we began to make progress. To put it very simply, the Japanese were aiming at a minimum sale price for the product, and we were aiming at a minimum production cost, not the same thing. The conclusions were that a plant would be a viable proposition with an assured market, although Japan would continue to obtain part supply from other sources. The Japanese said they saw the projected Australian venture as a genuine, independent alternative supply from the USA and others. No firm conclusion was reached on technology transfer. Both countries were working on centrifuge development, and the Japanese started construction on their first pilot plant at about the time the study ended. Both countries were well informed on others' technology, having been present at the Washington talks and members of ACE. From our point of view, the ideal outcome would have been a partnership between Australia, Japan and Urenko. However, the study report simply vanished into government circles late in 1978, and no more was heard of it. Rightly or wrongly, we came to the view that the reason was the NIH syndrome, not invented here. The study had been a brainchild of the previous Labour Minister and his departmental head, and we felt that it had been carried out under the Liberal government mainly because it would have been embarrassing not to do it. We also felt that the study was too late. It might have produced a positive outcome if it had been carried out when first agreed back in 1974. But by the time it was finished, the enrichment position had changed in the international scene. And in particular, Japan was proceeding with her own technology. And there were already potential sources of supply other than the USA, including Eurodiff in France, Urenco and the USSR. One aspect of possible collaboration with Japan in a uranium enrichment plant in Australia, which I feel received inadequate emphasis at the time, was the advantage of multinational ownership to strengthen safeguards against diversion of enrichment technology or its products for military purposes. This would be particularly valuable where the partners, such as Japan and Australia in this case, have strong support for nuclear non-proliferation measures. This aspect of multinational plants has been pointed out informally by the United States in our discussions at the time of the Washington talks in 1971, and was one reason why the USA appeared to favour partnership with Japan and Australia. 
The same comment was made much later in the report of 1984 by the Australian Science Technology Council, Aztec, on Australia's role in the nuclear fuel cycle. The Australian government did announce its continuing interest in uranium enrichment in January 1979 saying that the industry would offer substantial economic and employment benefits and that it would continue with feasibility studies with the potential collaborators including Urenco, Japan, France and other interested governments. It pointed out the importance of the environmental, safeguards and non-proliferation aspects of the industry. By this time, Australia was involved in the International Fuel Cycle Evaluation, INFCE. An international study proposed initially by the USA and which was studying the matter of safeguards and nuclear non-proliferation in great detail. The statement of January 1979 that the government would press ahead with feasibility studies was followed by a meeting in Canberra in May 1979 of representatives of all state governments and the Northern Territory at which Commonwealth officers from departments and the AAEC briefed them on the subject of uranium enrichment. As far as I am aware, that was the end of the matter as far as the Australian government was concerned. Despite that statement of intent, no further action to pursue enrichment studies until Australian industry took a hand, but that is another story. End of chapter 15 Australia's Uranium Opportunities by Keith Alder Recorded by Logan Smith with the permission of the Alder family Chapter 16 Our Final Departure from the Uranium Industry Back in June 1975, the Minister for Minerals and Energy in the Whitlam Labor Government, Rex Connor, had directed the AAEC to undertake uranium exploration and to participate in the mining and treatment of uranium in the Northern Territory, and also to handle all sales of Australian uranium. But then, once more, the Commission was affected by major policy changes. Soon after the change of government, following the dismissal, Our new minister, Mr J.D. Anthony, announced on the 1st February 1976 that the government believed that the exploration for uranium in the Northern Territory should be a matter for private enterprise and not the Commission. So we closed down the Exploration Division and sold its buildings and equipment in the Northern Territory. The last activity was to diamond drill a likely prospect which we believed would be a commercially viable ore body. The results were encouraging but we were out of the exploration business. We called it Ostatom 1, capped the hole and left. Many of the staff were able to return to company employment. We retained some as a resources assessment unit, later transferred to the Bureau of Mineral Resources. But it was a bad time for some and for the senior management people, who had been hammered so hard by the previous minister and his officials to get out there and start exploring. We did feel badly about the financial side of this episode. It was certainly not an efficient use of government funds, but orders are orders. By the time of the policy changes following the dismissal, we were also active partners in the Rangi Uranium Mine and owned a substantial share, 41.6%, in the Mary Kathleen Mine in Queensland, and our involvement in these enterprises continued for some time after we were phased out of exploration. 
It had been a very complicated business to involve the Commission in the mining game, involving agreements and memoranda of understanding with Pico Wallsend in particular, the only company ready to start in the Northern Territory at the time. It was even more complicated to get out of it again when the government decided to divest itself of its share in the Ranger Enterprise, eventually to the new consortium Energy Resources of Australia, ERA. However, this did not involve a large number of us in the AAEC. The brunt of this paperwork fell to my colleague, Mr. A.D. Andrew Thomas, who spent several months commuting to Canberra to work with officers of the Minister's Department on the documentation. The matter was complicated by the new legislation which had been passed in the early days of the Fraser Government, concerning environmental control Aboriginal matters, national parks, as well as specific uranium policy matters. The method of divestment was for the government to invite proposals for the acquisition of its interest in Ranger, which it did early in August 1979. Late in October, the minister announced that 17 organisations had made proposals, and then in December, he announced that the government had accepted the offer of Pico Wallsend through a new company, Energy Resources of Australia, ERA, which EZ also joined in January 1980. So, in summary, from the days of the Connor Ministry, when the AAEC was directed by government to undertake all sales of Australian uranium, to undertake all new uranium exploration and to participate actively in mining and treatment of uranium ores in the Northern Territory, Over the next five years, all these responsibilities were removed and restored to the private sector. Some of this work involved us in staff recruitment and reorganisation. For example, the creation and staffing of the uranium branch. Before long, we had to change all that again, redeploying people as much as possible to other tasks. We did not complain, but again, I have to object when I read that the Commission lost its way. It was not good for the morale in some sections of our organisation. Would you blame them? In retrospect, those of us who spent time on the Ranger Uranium project enjoyed it greatly. We had numerous visits to Darwin and the Ranger area, participated in innumerable planning and board meetings, and believed we had made worthwhile contributions to all of them, although it did not always seem as if our involvement was appreciated. The attitude of a few of the company men was to regard us as interfering bureaucrats, but on the whole the atmosphere was friendly, and I personally made some very good friends in the companies involved. The Commission's uranium branch was formally abolished in May 1979. Although the Commission was now out of the uranium industry, It was still looking to the future of the uranium processing industry in Australia, despite new government policies relating to its research establishment at Lucas Heights. In 1980, the CSIRO moved into Lucas Heights. The AAEC did not like this at all. The initial idea was for CSIRO to take over three of the Commission's research divisions, Chemical Technology, Materials and Environmental Science. However, the Minister, Senator Sir John Carrick, announced that the Commission would continue to operate a first-class nuclear research program at Lucas Heights. The final meeting in government circles to decide the future relationship between CSIRO and the AAEC took place in the offices of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet in Canberra 
I pointed out that the most important aspects of nuclear energy involve materials and environmental matters, and that if Australia removed these topics from its research capability, the nuclear world would be less than impressed with the Australian idea of a first-class nuclear program. The argument must have had some effect, because in the event CSIRO took over only one division, chemical technology, into its new Institute of Energy and Earth Resources. The main reasons why the AAEC was unhappy with the entry of CSIRO to the research establishment were the projected difficulties of administering services and charges and security between two separate organisations sharing these services on the one site. For example, engineering design, workshops and effluent services. In announcing the future programs of work at Lucas Heights, the Minister for National Development and Energy, Sir John Carrick, stated in December 1981 that the AAEC would continue to undertake research and development in nuclear energy, particularly in relation to uranium mining, processing and enrichment, as well as in environmental science and nuclear waste treatment and management. Thus, despite being phased out of the uranium industry, the AAEC was still foreseen to have a continuing role in the uranium fuel cycle. In particular, the Commission reported that its major research and development activity continued to be the long-term program to develop gas centrifuge enrichment technology. But this too was not to last for long. Before looking at its demise under government direction, it is appropriate to outline briefly the history and achievements of this program. End of chapter 16